Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. It's episode 52, and I'm recording this on the 29th of April 2021. A quick bit of podcast news to start with. We've set up a regular Circular Economy podcast newsletter, so you can get the latest episode show notes, links and transcript delivered to your inbox on Sunday morning every fortnight. If you're already signed up to Rethink Global News and Updates, click the link in one of those emails to update your preferences and check the box to receive the podcast newsletters. If you haven't yet signed up for our news and insights, you can sign up at rethinkglobal.info or I've put a link to the sign-up page in the episode show notes. In today's episode, I'm talking to Elizabeth Knight, who's an author, sustainability activist and founder of New York's first repair cafe. Elizabeth and John Wackman are the co-authors of Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Transforming Our Throwaway Culture. I was delighted to write an endorsement for the book last year, so I got a sneak preview and I'm delighted that Elizabeth Knight's joining us today to tell us more about repair cafes and why they're so important, both to support a circular economy and to strengthen communities. However, in January this year, I heard the sad news that John Wackman had died. John founded one of the first repair cafes in the United States, and he helped to start repair cafes in the entire Hudson Valley in the US. For many years, he acted as coordinator, communicator, and cheerleader for repair cafes across the Hudson Valley and further afield in the US, as well as for the repair movement globally. In Repair Revolution, John and Elizabeth explore repairing in the broadest sense of the word. They focus on the community repair experience, the wisdom of repair, the sustainable aspects of repairing, the adventure of opening a device and seeing what's inside, the right to repair that's gaining attention worldwide, and much more. Today, we'll hear how repair cafes can bridge across social divides and how they help people of all ages and backgrounds build new connections and develop their social confidence levels. We find out that you don't need to be a repair geek and hear about the wide range of volunteer roles available. Elizabeth explains what visible mending is, tells us inspiring stories about the rewards of being involved in a repair cafe and how you can find one or start your own. We begin with, with Elizabeth remembering John Wackman. Have a listen and I'll catch up with you afterwards. I'm the co-author of Repair Revolution. John Wackman, my friend and one of the Right to Repair heroes, had invited me to, to write, the, write a book with him. In January, um, John died very, very suddenly. It was a huge shock and a huge loss, not just to his family and friends, but for all of us in the repair community. 
John was a generous and joyful, as he said, the communicator and cheerleader for the repair cafes in the Hudson Valley region of the US, which is about almost 30 of them. But John was the kind of person who had connections all over the world. He thought it was great fun to discover a new contact on um, Instagram in Indonesia to talk about repair projects. John had John had a very big heart and a very bright vision for a brighter world. And the light is dimmed, but the rest of us are committed to carrying on in his name. Even though I only spoke to John a couple of times, I really sensed he was someone with a big heart and a big vision. And with the work he's done and this book, he's also left an important legacy for future generations. So Elizabeth, let's explore some of the insights from the Repair Revolution book. I'm seeing more in the media about repairing things. And in Europe and the UK, right to repair legislation is being rolled out. Could you tell us about the culture of repair and why repairing in community settings is so important? One of the reasons is because of the right to repair movement, when people have discovered that they, although you may own a device, it's practically impossible based on the design process for you to get out the battery or if you can get out the battery, it's glued in or you need a special five-pointed screwdriver to get X. It used to be that people repaired things at home. Many people grew up in a household where mom, dad, the man down the street, Mr. Fix-It, everybody could take the broken blender to that person or you knew how to sew on a button. A lot of that kind of um, hands-on, what they call now agency, the the, know, the actual practical know-how, a lot of that's been gone by the wayside. Part of it is because of after two world wars, uh, America had um, built up its manufacturing and it became... Um, part of being a good citizen to become a consumer, but, but that's not based on a sustainable model. You can't keep replacing things. And uh, Neil uh, Proctor, who's the head of the Right to Repair campaign for the U.S., says that the average American household throws out about $330 worth of goods per household because they can't get up to repair it. But part of it is people don't know how anymore. When I was in high school, we were taught... Um, there was a shop class for the boys and sewing and cooking for the girls. That's all gone by the wayside. It became just easier and it was supported by the manufacturers to become a consumer. I can remember as a young teenager seeing television commercials about, do you live in an under phoned home with only one telephone? Well, now everybody's got one in their pocket. So the sense of it was tragically, also we became consumers, not citizens. Mm. We didn't think about what we were buying and what the true cost to manufacture it is and what do you do with it when it's not working anymore. When I um, first moved to the village of Warwick, New York, which is the way the mayor pronounces it, um, I asked the realtor when we were driving around looking for a, a place to live, I said, so when do they put out all their stuff for the bulk pickup? And she said, oh, they don't do that here. Well, they do. Uh, every place does it. And I was stunned by the amount of great stuff 
kicked to the curb. I was, at the time, um, volunteering to teach English as a second language. A lot of the people I was working with wanted to be able to read to their children the books that uh, the kids were learning in school. But they didn't have enough money to buy the books. The books were stacked out on the sidewalk, along to a dresser, um, along to um, a child's toys. And I started scraping the stuff up. And then I thought, I don't have any place to put this. I don't own a barn. We don't have a materials exchange. So I called the Department of Public Works at the Village Hall and said, how much stuff do you pick up? Where does it go? What does that cost? What do you do with it after you pick it up? And the answer was a great deal of it went to a landfill. And I thought, this is crazy. The landfill, that's not sustainable. The landfills around here, the one in Ulster County, is going to be full in five years. And that's where John lived. Mm. So I began to think there has to be a better way to do this. And I was invited, not not invited, I read an article in in a local magazine about a repair cafe in a nearby town. And I thought, what on earth is that? And I read that you could, it was a free community working space where you could bring something that wasn't working and people who had the skills would try to help fix it. So I walked in the door with a lamp that the switch didn't work. And it was like a beehive of happy people. People were, there was a young Asian American man, college student, sitting there with a woman who was showing him how to take the hem out of a pair of plaid trousers that looked like they would have been worn in a 1920s movie about golfing. (laughs) There were um, teenage boys working on um, an electric keyboard. There was a woman showing a little girl how to sew a button eye on a teddy bear. And I thought, this is the way the world ought to be. People were, uh, my lamp, as it turned out, there was a problem that the man who was looking at it couldn't solve. He called over a fix-it coach from another table and they conferred on it. No, it needed this kind of a switch, not that kind of a switch. So I began to realize this is a place where it's more than about thing. It's about the connection that you have to the thing and how that connection connects the person who's fixing it. People don't just sit there with the lamp or the teddy bear with the torn ear. They tell you the story behind it, why it matters. I walked out of there and thought, we need one in my county. There's got to be one. And there wasn't. So I decided to start it. And when I was um, trying to figure out how to do this, I had someone come up to me and say, you haven't lived here very long, Elizabeth. This is a bedroom community, among other things, for uh, New York City. People can afford to just replace it. But you can't replace something that has meaning. You can always get another lamp, but you can't get the one like at our very first repair cafe. A nine-year-old girl walked through the door carrying a lamp that had belonged to her grandmother, and grandma had passed away, and the lamp didn't work, and the little girl wanted the one that grandma had given her. You can't walk down the street and buy that. Mm. So Fix-It Bob, who is a retired CB, Navy CB, and retired from a utilities company, sat down with the mom and the little girl and showed her how to diagnose the problem and what could be fixed and how to do it because there was a matching lamp at home on the other nightstand. So it's the larger sense of as Martina Postman, who founded the first repair cafe in Amsterdam in 2009, likes to say, the repair cafe can't solve the whole problem of 
um, tossing things away into a landfill, but it sends the signal that there is a better way to deal with the things that you need or love. And by coming together as a community to fix that, the signal gets stronger and also it strengthens the bonds between the people who are doing the fixing and the people who need it. When I was going to start our first repair cafe, John said to me, "Um, you think you're going to keep things out of the landfill because I belong to a local sustainability organization. And he said, and and that will happen. He said, but it's not going to be on a scale that is going to make a massive global change. He said, what you're really going to see is the connection to community. And I thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. But the first time I did it and we opened the door, you literally see the connections across all divides happening in front of your face. And it just feels great. And the coaches feel it too. And the people waiting in line start talking to each other. I've never seen that thing. What is that? Where did you get that? What's wrong with it? And then it turns out the guy sitting in two rows back says, I know how to fix that. And he gets up and sits down next to the coach and they confer. Everybody feels good. As um, Gabrielle Griffiths, who ran a fix-it clinic in Massachusetts, said, you know, fixing things isn't guaranteed, but learning about it is. Mm -hmm. That happens too. That's why libraries are so supportive of this. So to answer your question is it sends a signal that you don't have to throw something out. You ought to at least try to fix it because that's responsible. Mm -hmm. There are limited supplies, limited resources, and what kind of a world do you want to leave your kid? You can't just keep throwing stuff out. Mm. And more and more for people, you know, um, new things are becoming unaffordable. And the rate of product obsolescence seems to be speeding up ever ever faster you know we see more and more particularly tech companies that seem to be adopting this as a planned model um you know exactly apple, apple got fined for um deliberately slowing down um older models um after right. they brought out a new one um you know doing a supposed software upgrade that actually slowed slowed your iphone down and so right. on purpose a bit of uh, yeah exactly quite a bit of reputation damage from that and and people are getting really fed up of being you know persuaded in inverted commas to upgrade to the latest latest model so i'm interested to know what kind of people volunteer to fix things for people (laughs) they don't even know well um a lot of teachers a lot of engineers um but let me back up the kind of person who does that is generally a friendly outgoing person who nine times out of 10 volunteers for at least one other organization like uh, the friendly visitors program. Uh, They volunteer to drive people to doctor's appointments. Uh, They, uh, they're babysitters. They um, are on, they're on the school board. They're people who care about people other than just themselves. They are also people who tend to have grown up in a, um, very hands-on oriented household where people did not just throw things out. Uh, They also tend to have been curious kids. I can't tell you how many times I hear the story of, yeah, I used to sit underneath the the dining room table when we were having dinner with a screwdriver and pretended to unscrew the chairs. They're the kinds of people, like one mother said, 
she brought her son to her uh, kids take it apart table. She said she came down from, to make breakfast one morning and her four-year-old had taken apart the vacuum cleaner and spread it all over the floor. So they're, they're curious people. They're already engaged in community. They like to learn. They're lifelong learners. They love the aspect of problem solving. They think it keeps their brains active, but they also think it's fun. Um, and the interesting thing about it is once you've gotten someone to volunteer, at least half the time, sooner or later, they bring a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, or a spouse who ends up volunteering too. They, um, and I wanted to, to read you in their own words a couple of things about why they do it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is from Tom in Warwick, and he said, I like the idea of keeping useful things useful and out of landfills, and it seems there are lots of people who love ugly lamps. Um, someone else said, um, I could afford to spend more, throw things away and buy something new, but repairing is the way to go. Um, oh, this one. I said we get a lot of teachers. We get everybody from um, pre-K teachers who love working with youngsters and teaching them how much fun it is to take things apart and learn to uh, people with a PhD. This is Wendy Mahaney who started a repair cafe in Saratoga Springs. Having young kids inspired me to be more involved in local actions to improve their world. As a scientist with a PhD in ecology, I felt that I was not making a tangible difference in the world. I wanted to do something, something more directly impacting my community. I want hands-on. Someone else, uh, Michelle, the woman who sat underneath the table as a kid and unscrewed the chairs. Um, I love marrying the philosophy of creating community with the practicality of fixing things. Often we get people who have their own, um, their own small scale business. Naomi has her own furniture repair business. The community energy is so strong when people get together to keep a fair family heirloom going for another 50 years or fix the vacuum that keeps the floor clean. And I love this one. Volunteering is more rewarding than just do donating money to a cause. This mm. is hands-on. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have found that um, as we've all done different things during lockdown, haven't they? In the UK, um, there was a, uh, a call for volunteers to help, you know, deliver shopping to people who were isolating or um, do errands, that kind of thing. And um, I think they were looking for a couple of hundred thousand people. And within a few days, something like two million people had, had signed up to volunteer wow. yeah because wow. people just kind of you know saw saw what um the nhs and other people were were doing and wanted to kind of play their part in um helping the community through this and so you know you've you said that one hands-on way to repair our frayed connections to each other is to repair our beloved but broken things in community, in a space that welcomes everyone across all divides, um, economic, political and racial. Could you explain a bit more how you think repair can build community connections? Um, it builds community connections because people tend, particularly um, particularly in, a, in these days, it's so easy to spend so much time on your electronic devices. Uh, People don't tend to get outside the, their own little comfort zone. They don't tend to meet people who have, have gone to different schools, who do different things from work. 
um, or if you're um, if you're a parent of a young child, it's harder to get out into a larger world. You've got so many more responsibilities, and especially if you've got a full-time job or you're taking care of an elderly parent. By providing a free community space that says everybody's welcome, you're not asked whether you can afford this, you're not asked um, how did you vote, you're not asked how much money do you make, you're not asked where do you live, all, all you're asked is what's wrong with this? Tell me the story of what's wrong. And what happens is people, as I said, end up sitting next to each other waiting for their turn to be served. And then they start talking to each other, either over, it's called a, a repair cafe because it's a place that serves coffee, tea, and snacks. So they sit there and pour coffee for each other, or they talk about, uh, how did you hear about this? Often, often it's, oh, a friend came home and told me that they had repaired the, the vacuum cleaner, the sewing machine, the blender, the bicycle. And then they start talking about, where did you get that? What's the larger story? It's an opportunity. It's a public space like that expression about a third place. We have a home is the first place. The second place is a place to work or school. This is a third place to come together where you know you'll be welcome no matter who you are. Mm. That's how it helps to build community. Yeah, and I guess starting with those neutral stories, um, you know, how did you hear about this place or what's that you've brought? And, and that can then lead to people sharing more information if they want to like you know what the object means to them and its history and and all that kind of stuff but that's kind of optional isn't it so you start with something neutral instead of as you say the you know the usual conversation opener of what do you do for a living or exactly those kind of things um, and when you ask somebody what do you do for a living that automatically pigeonholes it mm, exactly yeah it's the it's the most annoying Opening, opening conversation gambit, I think. And well, you had said to me, when, you know, did I learn how to pronounce Warwick properly? I can remember when I first learned to London and moved to London and I was riding the tube and I didn't know you weren't supposed to chat people up. <laughs> I didn't know you don't ask, where did you go to school? Because that automatically pigeonholes you at a certain socioeconomic level. Mm. There, and the American version of that is, what do you do for a living? Yeah. And this is a place where that absolutely doesn't matter. Yeah, that's interesting. and It's refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. And you've, um, you've mentioned a couple of, uh, of stories already and quotes. Um, and um, in the book, you were, you were talking about um, a 13-year-old, Ethan, Ethan, I can't pronounce that, Belle? He pronounces it Ethan. Ethan. Ethan Beale or Belle? Well, Ethan Beale. Ethan Beale. Um, and so... Maybe you could tell us what he said about, um, you know, his reason for going to the repair cafe. Well, one of the reasons he was going was he, um, a lot of students need a certain number of community, um, community involvement hours in order to, to graduate. So Ethan had been coming rather regularly and we were sitting out outside after the repair cafe had closed for the day and I was waiting for his father to come pick him up and I said so you know what do you think about this Ethan and other than the you had to do it to get your your school hours what did you think and what he said took my breath away and I said Ethan I want you to repeat that so I'm going to write it down and I'm going to tell everybody and I got his dad's permission to do this so 13 year old Ethan Beale said and this is a direct quote two years ago it's nice to know 
that with the news saying so many sad and depressing stories, there's a place where there are people who are willing to help you, no matter who you are, for no other reason than to help you in the best way possible. It gives me hope. To think that a 13-year-old boy needed hope about community, that was heartbreaking. But to think that he had found a place where he could see it, it wasn't just a philosophical lecture or an example of a parable, it was real. And the other wonderful thing about it was Ethan brought a friend to volunteer sometimes also. We, we have a, kids play a significant part in this. We have a 13 year old girl who loves to bake. Um, whenever one of her parents would come to bring something, Ellie would just show up with things that were st- like a chocolate cake still warm from the oven with freshly whipped whipped cream. And she was part of the community too. She had something to share. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, everybody feels good. Yeah, and and as you said about um, Ethan, it's concrete, isn't it? It's not it's not being hopeful about the possibility of something. It's seeing something that is in your community that you're part of, and that you can kind of build on and and you know grow other ideas, other hopeful ways of making a better world instead of. Um, you know, continuing to go in in the in the ro- lots of the wrong directions that we we now realise that we are, and so you've you've given a few examples of children attending repair cafes. But what's the best way to involve um, children if if you're um, thinking about getting a repair cafe going, or you already know about one locally? Well, one of the one of the best ways is um, contact the schools, contact the churches and the synagogues in your area and ask if they have a, a community uh, service program and then describe what the child can achieve by volunteering at a repair cafe that is not theory, that it's hands on, that they can be um, if they would like to learn to repair things, we will re- we will pair the child with an adult coach and the child can sit and observe until they're at the stage where they could actually now pick up a tool and participate. So that's hands-on, not theory. That's really fun. Uh, One of the other things we do with kids that's extremely popular in many repair cafes is what we call the kids take it apart table. Putting it together is not required. (laughs) There are, um, one of the best ones was one of our regular guests uh, sent an email one time and said, um, thank you for everything you do for the planet. Is the zipper lady going to be here today? So the zipper lady, who is a retired teacher, was able to fix, I think it was a backpack. But this young woman also had a hairdryer. And the problem described with it was it shrieks and stinks and smokes when you turn it on. Okay. She took it to the small electrics team and they decide that that it is truly beyond repair. And she said, where's the recycle bin? And they said, oh, don't take it there. Take it over to the kids, take it apart table and see if Jim thinks that that's safe for the kids to work on. Jim is as big a kid as the others are, the little ones. He cut off the plug, handed the little ones screwdrivers, showed them where to take it apart. And the woman who had brought the thing in said, this isn't a kid's take it apart table. She said, it's the reuse PlayStation. <laughs> so the, <laughs> so it's, it teaches hands-on the word agency that you can learn to do it yourself. I can't doesn't always apply. You just need someone to talk you through it. We've had kids as young as four sit there for four hours 
playing at the PlayStation. So the, the older kids can volunteer to be um, a coach or to help people carry things in and out of the car. The, it's hard to manage a toddler, another one in a stroller, and trying to carry in um, a vacuum cleaner, too. Uh, they also were really good at the check-in, check-out table, explaining the rules, welcoming people. They like to volunteer to help at the, as I said, Ellie, either bring something or help set up the food table. They are valued as an active participant in a repair cafe. And they, most of them rise at the occasion. Yeah, that sounds great. It sounds really inspiring. And it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd have been good at the taking apart um, bit, but um, yeah, less less confident with the putting back together. Though I have, I did used to repair, well, and build uh, my own mountain bikes, including building wheels. Um, wow. But it was never a kind of natural skill. You know, it was always something that I had to really apply my full concentration to to make sure I got it right and put everything back in the right order and so on. So Elizabeth in the book you give some examples of visible mending and apparently that's becoming a popular hashtag on Instagram these days. I saw it featured in an article on sustainable fashion recently. Um, could you explain what visible mending is and why people use it? Sure. Uh, it, let me back up um, Maybe I can give you a concrete example. My mother was what in the 50s and 60s was called a seamstress, which is now a rather uh, dainty term. Um, the new word now is sewist, a combination of the word sew and artist. And But my mother was that even back then. I can remember she made me a brand new brown corduroy jumper to wear to school one day, and I must have been in about third or fourth grade. And I tore it on the playground the first day I wore it. <clears throat> so my mother was obviously, A, not pleased, but she wasn't concerned about making the repair invisible. It used to be considered uh, by many people that if you wore clothing that the, the way that it was repaired was visible, it was an advertisement to the world that you couldn't afford to buy a new one. My mother didn't believe that. She saw it as a creative opportunity. So she repaired my torn jumper with a patch that looked like a lily pad with a little felt frog with bright bead eyes on it. And not only that, she made it into a pocket. It was fabulous. Well, that's what visible mending is these days. It's a creative opportunity to express yourself. You're not supposed to make it look like life never happened. It's take what you've got. It's like the Japanese notion of wabi-sabi. Mm. The perfection is in the imperfection, the, create, the creative opportunity. So that's what visible mending is. We've got uh, sewists and repair coaches who, who can teach that technique. We also have the traditionalists who can make it invisible. But it also applies to things that happen between people. And it goes back to the community strengthening one of the stories that I will always remember is a mom had called me to say that she had a son, a young teen, who needed some community service hours as a school requirement, as we discussed. And she said he had been taking apart small engines from the time he was about six, and he'd been doing that with his dad. And could he come volunteer? And he wanted to fix things. And I said, yes, but for his safety and everyone else, he's going to have to be paired with an adult. And I will pair him with somebody who does small electrics. And also the bicycle guy needs help. Fine. 
So that morning, about 45 minutes before the repair cafe opens, we're all, all of the coaches and the volunteers are unloading cars and holding doors and in a house, the family, what do you think they're going to bring in today? A truck drives up with a young teenage boy in the passenger seat and the windows are down. And when the truck is parked, the father starts this expletive laden rant at the boy. And it's so loud. Anybody in the parking lot can hear every miserable thing he called this child. Now, I better not hear this about you, you little blankety blank. And you better not do blankety. It was horrible, horrible. And the kid's just staring at his feet. Finally, the kid gets out and the father roars out of the parking lot. One of the sewing team members who happened to have been a high school teacher, not in that area, said to the boy, well, the rest of the morning is going to be better than that. And he held the door. They went in. I introduced the boy. We'll call him Dave to the two adult coaches. So Dave is sitting with Fix It Bob fixing lamps and he looks up and there is an elderly African-American woman pushing a lawnmower through the door. Uh, her, she's got a probably a, about a 19, 20 year old boy with her. The kid, Dave, leaps out from behind the repair table, runs across the room, takes the, the lawnmower away from her, puts it up on the table. And at that, the man who's the bike coach joins him. And Dave is asking the woman, you know, what happened? What doesn't it do? What's wrong with it? When did it work? And the adult coach, Rich, said, that kid is a mechanical genius. He said he correctly diagnosed the problem in 30 seconds. The woman is so astonished that it's going to take a small repair and so delighted. She said, she points to the older boy and said, this is my grandson and this is what he's doing to earn money. He needs this for work. She grabs Dave by the face, kisses him on both cheeks and says, you don't know what you've done. me." <laughs> so the kid's a hero. She's got her problem solved. She turns to her grandson and says, why couldn't you do that? And I pulled her aside later and said, do you know that Dave has had his dad coach him since he was six years old? Did your grandson have that opportunity? And she said, no, he didn't. And I said, well, it's not everybody's got that to grow up with. So when, end of story, um, as we were getting ready to pack up, I went to both of the coaches and said, so how did you like working with Dave? He's a great kid. He knows a lot. When's he going to come back? And I said, I'd, you all heard what his dad said to him this morning when we were unloading the cars. When his dad comes to pick him up, will you please, each of you, give him a specific compliment of something that you saw and make sure his dad hears it? They did. And you could see this kid visibly mended in front of his father, stood up, proud of himself, and they walked out, in a sense, reconciled. I don't know what the problem was. I don't want to know. But you saw it fixed, mm -hmm. at least temporarily, that this was a kid who knew what he was doing and was contributing. And the kid felt it, and the community felt it, and the coaches, you know, it was all man-to-man -man telling each other how much he'd done. And he came back the next time and brought another kid with him. Mm -hmm. And they both worked. And so to me difference you've made to the to the lady with the lawnmower and her grandson whose job depended on that lawnmower working 
Um, right. That's another brilliant story in itself, isn't it? And that must have made him feel, you know, like he'd had a really good start and, and seen the power of helping right. people repair stuff. And he enjoyed it as much as as the adults did mm. and realized that he was making a real contribution. Yeah. And one that he wanted to make and had been taught to make. So that's the community mending and the lawnmower didn't end up in the landfill. It doesn't get better than that. No, that's a, that's a great story. And so for anyone listening, Elizabeth, and wanting to start a repair cafe in their own town, where could they go for advice and tips? Well, number one, repair revolution. I, I wrote the chapter about how do I get one of these in my town, chapter seven, that tells you where and how to look for sponsors and partners. You don't have to do it alone. What kind of people are you looking for? Where do you find them? What kinds of things need to be fixed? And I wrote it from having done it all wrong. <laughs> so you are you get the benefit of my mistakes and my missteps. And also, in preparation for writing this book, I had sent out a questionnaire to every repair cafe organizer I could find across the country. And I've got their insights and suggestions, too. And many, many of them are so brilliant, I'm going to adapt them myself. It was, it was really a labor of love to talk to other people who wanted to make a difference right where they lived with right what they had in front of them. It wasn't in your head. You didn't need a government grant to do it. You just needed a couple of like-minded people to try. Mm. Yeah, sounds amazing. <laughs> and I guess, although COVID's forced us to, to kind of... Um, uh, delay in-person repair events. Now's the perfect time to start thinking about how you could set up a cafe in your own region and who you know that's good at repairing. Um, you know exactly. who, who might be a sewist, um, and exactly. who might be, the, who might be um, you know Bob the Bob the fixer and and uh, and that kind of thing. And so finally, Elizabeth, how can people get in touch or find out more? And of course, we'll put the links to where people can buy the Repair Revolution book in the show notes, but um, what other links would, would you um, encourage people to follow up? Uh, I would suggest repaircafeusa.org. Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest Repair Cafe TV, even though we can't meet in person, as you said right now, there are a lot of Zoom repairs. Uh, Google uh, Rodeo City Repair Cafe, that's in Ellensburg, Washington. There is a whole list of curated repair videos on wow. that site. Also, um, in our book, we have a list of uh, Repair Cafe uh, curated videos. Um, and the Repair Cafe Fix It, the organizer is uh, Don Fick in um, North Carolina, and he's hosted a lot of international Repair Cafe Zooms. Yeah, so, I heard that there was there was kind of an online one where you could go and, and um, uh, watch and, and participate. It's not quite, kind of quite the right word, is it? But sort of, you know, be involved in a group that was helping diagnose and work out how exactly. to fix things um, as exactly. a way of um, increasing your skills and confidence. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for telling us just a few of the brilliant stories that are in the Repair Revolution book. Um, it was it was a great read. I really enjoyed it. And it, you know, just like the conversation with you today, listening to all those stories of people feeling like they're making a difference and connecting with others in their community and in ways that would be unlikely to happen in any other um, scenario in the community. It's really inspiring. And I think there's lots in there that can, um, you know, help help people find uh, optimism and hope. As, as Ethan said, you know, gives, gives me hope. 
being involved in something like the Repair Cafe is a, is a really good way to do that and start feeling like you're being part of the solution and not part of the problem. So exactly. thank you very much for taking the time um, to tell us a few of those stories today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We're all aching to be able to get together again mm. and fix things and fix our small part of the world one thing at a time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. I was fascinated to hear how powerful repair cafes can be in bringing communities together, in helping people build their personal confidence and overcoming lots of those social barriers that inhibit conversations with people outside our usual social circles. It's inspiring to hear how people can contribute in so many ways, not just being a repairer, but coaching people in repair skills, acting as a meter and greeter, helping in the cafe, baking goodies to brighten everyone's day, and much more. What surprised me were all the stories of young people and children. They're learning valuable life skills, plus building their confidence and learning how to engage with people from different backgrounds. I loved Elizabeth's story of the reused PlayStation and could imagine that sparking a lifelong fascination for mending stuff for lots of budding repairers. That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world for people, planet and your business. Get in touch via the website or connect with me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. Make sure you get the edition with the orange cover, which has a new chapter on packaging, lots of extra examples and updated research in every chapter. You can find resources and links mentioned in today's episode, as well as a transcript of the conversation at rethinkglobal.info, where you can find out how we help you succeed with Circular.